so glad you're here with us. And um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and grab it. We're going we're gonna to keep working through the book of Matthew. Uh, we are a couple weeks in now. And today we're going to look at the whole second chapter of Matthew. And so let's, let's turn there in our Bibles, whether it's digital or paper. You'll see it on the screen as well. And here's just what we're going to do today. Uh, I'm just going to walk through chapter 2 with us. And we're going to stop and explain some things. And then at the end, I'm going to try to pull it together and uh, apply it to our lives in a way that I hope will be helpful. There's three main uh, characters that we're going to see. It's Herod, the wise men, and Joseph. And we're going to mainly focus on the contrast that I think is intentional between Herod and the response of the wise men. I think there's much for us to learn there. Okay, so let's, let's dive in and see what we find here. Let's start in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now this might remind you of your favorite Christmas carol. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but I'm going to ruin it for you this morning if it is. So we three kings of Orient are not biblical. All right? Um, and there's some other ones too that kind of bother me. But I'm just going to keep that <laughs> under wraps lest I ruin anybody's Christmas Eve tomorrow night. But um, we can talk about that later if you want. But no, the Bible doesn't say that they were kings, does it? And the Bible doesn't say the number of them. Um, and so right off the bat, the Bible says that these guys are called wise men. So what was that? What was a wise man? In antiquity, or that's just a fancy way of saying many, many years ago, ancient times, wise men functioned uh, as advisors to royalty, okay? So wise men kind of blurred the line between kind of the... Um, what's the word, just kind of the, the, the sketchier science of uh, astrology, right, with the more legit science of astronomy. You with me? And these guys kind of blurred the lines. What they would do is they would look at the stars and study them and then make conclusions about advice to be given to those to whom they worked for, Right? So they kind of blurred the line between astrology and astronomy. And and scholars don't think that there were three of them because we learn that, um, we're going to learn in a second, that lots of people noticed that they were there. And so three people might not draw that much attention. But a big group would have garnered that kind of attention. But in addition, if you're traveling all that way, most scholars think they probably came from the Persian Empire which would be like modern-day Iran and Iraq, if you're coming all of that way over rough terrain in a day and age when there's no high-speed trains, there's no airplanes, you would have traveled in a big entourage because it would have been easier, right? You take care of each other and more people to carry things that you would need to make that kind of a trip. Another question is related to what, were, what was the information that they were going off of? to make this huge, significant trip? Like, what were they doing? 
And we learn in verse 2, look at what it says. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we don't honestly know. There's lots of theories about how these guys got the information that they got to want to act upon it in a dramatic way like this. We simply don't know. Another thing we don't, simply don't know is what's up with the star? Like a lot of people think there was a comet in the sky or other theories about what was happening there. Just some miraculous um, event that God just ordained. And we can speculate all we want, but the point I want us to see is this. We do know for sure that these pagan astrologers slash astronomers responded in faith to what they saw and made a huge sacrifice in terms of time, money, and energy to do this, to go and worship King Jesus. That's what the Bible says. That's the point. They've come to worship. The point is not, what was up with the star? The point is not, well, how much of the Old Testament did they have? Because these, these weren't Jewish people to like respond to this and understand there's a king coming who's the anointed Messiah, Christ. We don't know, but what we do know is these guys came to worship. That's the point. These guys came to worship. So I want you to see already that that which Matthew tells us is of utmost importance. At the very end of the book of Matthew, he says, here's the big deal. Here's the thing that's most important. He's talking to his disciples. He says, I want you guys to go. I don't want you to stay. I want you to go. I don't want you to go just to the small regions around Jerusalem. No, I want you to go, and what does it say? To all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Make disciples of all nations. That's capital A, all. This is a big all. It's, 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 it's saying that King Jesus has authority and rule and reign over the whole world. And he has the authority to call worshipers for himself from all nations. That's the end of the book of Matthew. And what's so interesting is we see that happening already. You feel that? These are, these are dudes from the Persian Empire. They, they, don't, they, don't worship, they don't worship the God of the Bible. And already the nations are being drawn to King Jesus. Already the nations are being drawn to King Jesus at Christmas time. Already, Jesus is gathering worshipers from the most unexpected places. So that's the first kind of uh, view of the first characters we have. Now we're going to turn and look at a different character. Look at verse 3. Let's keep reading. When Herod and the king heard this, meaning that these wise men from a foreign land had come, when Herod and the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, isn't this amazing? I think it's easy to miss, but let's stop here and think about this. We don't find the leader of God's people. 
we don't find him as one who's setting the tone of worship of King Jesus, right? We don't find him setting the tone of trust in King Jesus. What do we find? When there's, what does it say? When there's word of, of, of the king of the Jews being born and the wise men coming to worship him, what is the response of the leader of God's people? That's, that's King Herod. Now, he was a puppet king under the Roman Empire for sure, but still a king of God's people, of Jewish people, appointed by the Romans. What's his response? Well, what does it say? He's troubled. He's troubled. And all Jerusalem, the people with him, it's fear, it's threat. But here's the crazy part. Here's the crazy part that we can miss. They still, even though they feel threatened, even though they feel fear, they still intellectually assent to the truth of God's word. Did you see that? See, Herod gathers the Bible scholars. That's where it says uh, chief priests and and, uh, scribes. He gathers the Bible guys to him and says, okay, implicitly he's saying, I trust what the Bible says is true, and they confirm it. Look at what they said in verse 5. For so it is written. We're going to believe what the Bible says about the location of where the Messiah is to be born. We believe the Bible. That's the point. They believe God's Old Testament revelation. What does it say? What does it say? Isn't that strange? That they feel threatened and they feel troubled, but at the same time, they resonate with the authority of God's word. You would think if they loved God and they recognized the authority of God's word, they wouldn't have a troubling response. They would have a worship response like the wise men. That's not what we have. This is complicated, isn't it? Let's keep this in mind as we see this, as we move into the text. But I want you to feel the contrast emerging already, right? you got these pagan star watchers that have very little information about Jesus, not much Bible, coming all this way to be givers, worshipers of King Jesus. That's odd. But at the same time, on the other hand, you've got God's chosen people and their ruling leader, those who have all of God's revelation, they have God's word, and yet they're rejecting him in fear. And it's going to get worse than just fear. But I want you to feel that contrast already. I think it's intentional here. I think there's much for us to learn. All right, so let's keep reading. Verse 7. Now Herod, he's going to hatch a diabolical plan. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's a liar. Right? He's a liar. He's aligning himself with Satan. Satan, the Bible says, is the father of lies. Verse 9. We flip back to the wise men. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they've offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. All right, so let's feel the contrast again. You've got the nations streaming to Jesus. When they find him, unlike God's chosen people who just fear, they have the opposite of fear. What's that? They have massive joy. Joy is the opposite of fear. You see this contrast of fear versus joy. And look at verse 10. This is, this is intentional on Matthew's part. It says, they rejo- when they saw King Jesus, what, what was their response? What were their emotions? Were they indifferent? No. Being in the presence of God does something to your heart. It has to. What does it say? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's just Bible speak for they freaked out. They freaked out. They were over the moon. They couldn't contain themselves. You got these high-ranking officials that hang out with royalty from a foreign land prostrating themselves in humility before a baby King Jesus. And again, I want you to see again how the end of the story is being foreshadowed yet again. The book of Revelation says that those who are in positions of authority, maybe if you wear a crown, a crown is a symbol of my authority. The end of the book of Revelation says that the rulers of the nations will take their crowns, symbol of authority, and cast them down before King Jesus. In essence saying, you know what? We recognize true authority. Our authority is nothing compared to the authority of King Jesus. Our authority is nothing compared to the authority of the master of all the universe. And we're willing to prostrate ourselves before King Jesus because he's that great, he's that beautiful, he's that awesome. And that's what we find here in these guys. Men of authority, men of rank, right From day one, Jesus' birth, we see the nation streaming to Jesus, prostrate before his authority, casting down their crowns in worship and joy, and willing to give gifts that would have been very expensive. They didn't hoard money to themselves. No, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is more of a treasure than frankincense and myrrh and gold. Jesus is more of a treasure than that. I want you to feel that. I want you to feel that this morning. This is the Christmas response. This is the response of those who know that God has come to dwell with us. He is the king. He is the king. Let's keep reading verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The Bible says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And again, we see clearly Herod aligning himself with Satan as first a liar and secondly now as a murderer. He is not the Antichrist, but he is a type of Antichrist, right? Anybody who wants to murder King Jesus is as Antichrist as it 
gets. But think about how crazy this is. That you've got a guy in Herod who recognizes the authority of God's word such that when he hears that the prophecy has been fulfilled, he's like, you would think if he hated God, he would be like, no, God's word is dumb. I'm not going to listen to that. Why would I listen to some ancient prophets fulfilling some prophecy? Like that doesn't make any sense. No, he believes it. He intellectually assents, again, like we said, to the authority of God's word. But he recognizes it enough to hate it. It's just like what you see in the New Testament with the Pharisees. They knew that Lazarus was risen from the dead. They saw it, right? And at the end of that story in John 11 and 12, what is their response? It says the, 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 the closing line in that narrative is, and after this they plotted to kill Jesus. They knew it was true, but Jesus is a threat, so we got to get rid of him. So here's another angle on, on the sinful human heart. Isn't it amazing how we can think about the truth, be exposed to the truth, maybe intellectually assent to the truth, but it's not just what you think. The more profound question, biblically speaking, is not what you think, although that is important, but your thoughts are secondary to your desires. Our desires will, will, will cause us to rationalize anything to get what we want. That's just, the, that's just sinful human nature. And that's what we see in Herod here. He knows God's word is true. He knows this is the Messiah. But he doesn't care. Because the Messiah is a threat. And I would rather love my selfish desires. I would rather love my position of authority, whether it's Herod or the Pharisees or us, as we're going to get to in a second, than bow down and worship King Jesus. It takes the Holy Spirit to take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, we're back to Joseph. So we've learned, Joseph learns from the angel that Herod's out to get Jesus. I'm going to kill him, so get out of here. you got to go to Egypt. And verse 14, and so Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remaining there until the death of Herod. And remained there until the death of Herod. Now why did this happen? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now again, we, like we talked about last week, Matthew's quoting the Old Testament all the time. And he's doing it again. And what he's trying to do is show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. So he's saying to a Jewish audience that knows the Old Testament, remember when God's people, remember when God's people were called out of slavery and God said through the, the prophet Hosea that I am going, to, that I drew this people that I love, a couple million of them, out of Egypt. And metaphorically speaking, I refer to them as like my son. These are people I love, I'm a, and I'm going to do everything. I'm going to turn the world upside down, literally, to have this people come to me. And he's saying, remember that? 
Well, I want you to think about Jesus like that. I want you to see that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one that fulfills what Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is the one who will perfectly obey. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the fulfillment. That's what he's trying, and he's going to keep on this theme, and we're going to show you this in the coming weeks in the opening chapters of Matthew. He stays on this theme that Jesus is everything that Israel was supposed to be but failed to be. But there is one. There is one faithful Jew. There is one. He's perfect. His name is Jesus. That's what he's doing here. Verse 16. Back to Herod. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Man, what a horror. Can you imagine this? The hatred of Jesus will lead you to do crazy things. See, when people see Jesus as a threat, like Herod did, they might be willing to kill to get Jesus out of their way. If you see anything in this text, I want you to, we're going to continue to tease this out, see this contrast between the wise men and Herod. And I think the theme here is that Jesus doesn't allow anyone to be apathetic or complacent. Jesus doesn't allow anybody to be apathetic or complacent. Now, if you're lacking in understanding, that's one thing, right? You might be complacent if you don't really understand who Jesus was and what he claimed about himself. Then, you, then maybe you'll be apathetic. But if you really understand who he is, and it seems like both parties did, Herod for sure did. He had God's word. He had Bible teachers telling him. He obviously believed it. And we don't know for sure what the wise men had, but they had something to work off of. And the wise men, they they probably knew a little bit, and they responded with joy and worship. Herod knew a lot, intellectually at least. He assented to the truth of the Bible about the coming Christ, the anointed one. And that led him to brutal, savage murder of innocent people just because he felt threatened. It's not rational, right? It's not rational at all. Sin is always irrational and always makes us do crazy things. Here's the point. If Jesus is a threat to us, it could drive us to complete irrationality to keep him out of your life. We're going to come back to that. Let's finish it up here with verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought to take the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth 
so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Just as a side note, and I love Joseph. Do you not love him? Like, he doesn't ever speak in the Bible. We saw that last week. He just obeys. He doesn't speak, he just obeys, right? So many times in the Bible, like Moses would be a classic example, when God comes and speaks to someone, oftentimes you think it's not something you'd want to do, but it happens in the Bible. They talk back to God, right? Moses is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's crazy. No, thanks. I'm out. And, and God's like, yeah, you are. And so eventually he does. Joseph doesn't talk back at all. He just obeys. He gets all of these intense revelations about what to do, and he just, he just does it. We don't have a record of him arguing with God. We just have a record of him receiving God's word and doing it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So what do we have this morning? What should we make of chapter 2? What should we make of chapter 2? I want you to step back from chapter 2 and consider these two opposite responses to Jesus. So again, Jesus doesn't allow us just to be apathetic, to be complacent. I think it's possible to see ourselves in both responses of either the wise men or Herod. So let's just start with Herod for a second. Now, of course, I would imagine that most of us here, all of us here, aren't as diabolical or demonic as, or dramatic as Herod. But can we see ourselves in Herod? We believe God's word enough to read it, like he did. All right. I want some more of God's word. Help me understand God's word. But when we find, when what we find there gets in the way of our ambition, when it gets in the way of what we want, we can freak out emotionally and do the opposite of what the Bible says. I can relate to that. Can you relate to that? For us, it might be, you know, like, like we've talked about already, the, the clear command for the church is to make disciples of all nations. And so what does that mean for us? What that means is there's only three choices. Well, there's actually four. You give, you pray, or you go. And the other option is just disobedience. You give, pray, go, or disobedience. That's what we teach here. But you might read that in the scriptures and see that all over the pages of scriptures and go, man, I don't want to go myself. That seems like way too much of an inconvenience. I don't want to give any of my money or give any of my time in prayer, but the church is asking me to do this, so I'm just going to maybe resent the church or I'm just going to leave the church and find a church that doesn't actually ask me to love God's word and respond rightly to it. I'm going to read God's word, but I will act upon it only to the degree that it doesn't get in the way of my desires. To the degree that God submits to my desires, I'm in. But if he makes me uncomfortable, I'm out. See, that was Herod's response. Read God's word and trust that it's true, but since it makes him very, very uncomfortable, there's a threat to my throne. I'm going to do some crazy things to try to not have to deal with Jesus. How do we do that in our lives, right? See, this might hit closer to home than we think. Like, what do we do when God's word pushes against our sense of safety? How about that? 
Like when you read the book of Acts, these guys are given a mandate as they're filled with the Holy Spirit to plant churches and make disciples. And as you read the book of Acts, it's not super comfortable. It's beautiful. It's not comfortable. And as a pastor, man, I'm looking for myself, and I know this would, this would like tickle some itching ears that want to hear. I keep looking for that verse in Acts and other places that says, go ye therefore and be safe. And I just can't find it. I can't find that one. But like that pushes against my comfort zone. Like safety sounds pretty good, right? Safety sounds pretty good. So what's my response going to be? Or what's your response going to be when it's like, hey, let's go to Ecuador. Well, is it safe? Why is that our first question? Why shouldn't our first question be, is it obedient? Yes. All right, I'm in. You know what I'm saying? I want to serve my neighbor across the street. Well, is it safe? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're just going to get to know them. What if they're weird? Well, what's obedient? See, what do we do when God's word rubs up against our desires? What do we do when God's word calls us to practice submission in ways that we find uncomfortable? Herod is very uncomfortable. You see him being extremely uncomfortable. He's not self-reflective and going, why am I uncomfortable right now? Why do I feel threatened by King Jesus? No, he's just like, that's a threat. Get it out of my face. I don't care who I have to slaughter to get rid of it. Most of us aren't going to go to those lengths but it's probably going to be a lot more subtle. And it's worthy of reflection. It's worthy of reflection. Because if we go the way of Herod, all it does is lead to misery. But there's another choice that's clear in Matthew 2. It's the choice of the wise men, right? If this is our posture, the wise men posture, then when we find Jesus on the other side of obedience, right, there will be a response It looks like the wise men. What did it say in verse 10? Exceedingly great joy. These guys freaked out with joy. They couldn't contain their joy. It wasn't stoic. Like it was an actual physical response. When you throw your body on the ground, that communicates non-verbally that you're experiencing something internally, right? And think about the wise men. These guys were greatly inconvenienced, right? They had to travel a long way. And they didn't have airplanes. They didn't have high-speed trains. They traveled so far, and that would have been so expensive. It's dangerous. It's not safe to travel that far. They didn't have 911 like we do. And they brought these gifts that were no joke, Right? They could have kept that stuff and sold it and kept the money, but they didn't. They saw what they saw. We don't even know what it was, some type of a revelation from God's word. And they responded in obedience. And it didn't matter how costly it was. 
But I want you to take note of the progression. See God's word, respond in obedience because out of love for God. And then what's the result? See, sin in the short term always feels good. What Herod did, I'm sure it felt really good to him. It brings misery. In the long term, obedience sometimes is hard. But in the long term, it always brings joy. And that's what these guys got. It took them a while to get there. But once they did, once they arrived out of faith and the journey of obedience, exceedingly great joy. And that's the promise of God's word. That's the promise of God's word. It might not happen overnight. It might take you a while to get there. There might be some sacrifice. There might be some money to to give. There might be laying down of some treasures. There might be laying down of some crowns. But eventually, it's a biblical promise. At at his right hand, the psalmist says, are pleasures forevermore. Exceedingly great joy. We live in a world where anxiety and depression is skyrocketing. I get it. I've been there. I'm still there sometimes. In that kind of world, what are we all longing for? We're longing for joy. And it seems like the wise men were on to something that, that the Herod couldn't fathom. Laying it all down in love for Jesus resulted in joy that can't be contained. Wise men and women will see this and pursue their way. See, this experience of the wise men can still be had for men and women today. For the sake of God's glory and our joy, let, let's join Man, I just want to call our church to that, the, the wise man's response. Be, be, be careful that you write off Herod as like, oh, that's not possible. Well, maybe murder and slaughtering your children. Yeah, we hope that's not possible. But that kind of heart can live in all of us. It might not be that crazy, but it will still be irrational. But it doesn't have to be that way. Let's join the wise men. This morning and collectively laying it all down for King Jesus. Because he's worthy. The cross says he's worthy. The cross says he loves us. The tomb is empty. It says there's victory and that he loves us. And we're raised with him in his, in his resurrection and filled with his Holy Spirit. So there's no inconvenience that isn't worth it. There isn't any risk that isn't worth taking. He's worth it. There isn't any gift for him that's too lavish. And it's just a matter of time until you too experience exceedingly great joy. And then let's do that together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this word. Thanks for your truth. Thanks for how you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so may we trust your precious promises this morning. 